You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Now, this won't be news to any of you, uh, but I learned last week why we called the mountains to our east the Cascades, the Cascade Range. It has to do with water. Duh. Um, I didn't, it never occurred to me before that we call them the Cascades because of water, and there's a story behind that. In 1805, as explorers uh, started moving west, Lewis and Clark were the first, and then others that came, the last real obstacle they had to cross were these mountains. And at these mountains, there were waterfalls, there were rapids that came through. It's just a sheer force of volume of water coming at them. And uh, they had to cross this. And so at first, they just referred to this, this area, these mountains, as the mountains by the Cascades. And then with time, that got shortened to just the Cascades. But this gives me a kind of an image in my mind of these great mountains with uh, water coming off of their slopes through channels flowing out to the Pacific Ocean, as far as the eye can see. Tonight, I want to suggest that as we pray the Lord's Prayer and we come in particular to the fifth petition, we uh, come to a, a, a petition behind which there's a story. And I think it's a story of cascades. It's a story of cascading forgiveness. So we'll explore that. But all along, I've been saying to you that it's not just a bunch of words, the Lord's Prayer, that it's actually a way of life that becomes possible for those who know how to pray this prayer. We see that most clearly in the fifth petition because there's a link between our asking for our own forgiveness and our experience of forgiveness with other people, isn't there? Jesus links those two together. It's as though I think the Father is saying, yeah, I want to forgive you. I do want to forgive you. But I also want my forgiveness to cascade through you into the lives of other people. Isn't that right? So let's let Jesus be our teacher tonight as he leads us into this fifth posture, a posture of reconciliation. Would you please pull out the black book in front of you, turn to page 787 or the Bible that you brought and open up to Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 through 15. I want us to read the epilogue to the prayer, verses 14 and 15, for reasons you'll see later. If you're able, would you please stand and let's read God's word aloud together with reverence as an act of worship. And when we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading his holy word. When you are praying, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then in this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. Please be seated. I've always been uncomfortable with this part of the Lord's Prayer, I think for two reasons. One is, um, he talks about forgiveness, but I'm not sure in our current day, um, which is a day in which no one really seems to believe in guilt anymore, that forgiveness is even a relevant concept. 
My other concern is the apparent conditionality of this. You see it most clearly in verses 14 and 15, this if-then kind of thing. Makes me nervous because it's almost, it seems like what we're saying is, God, if you need any kind of help imagining what good forgiveness looks like, well then just use my life as a model. Notice how good I am at forgiving anybody and then just forgive me that way. And I'm like, oh, I'm in deep trouble if that's how I have to pray. The conditionality. So I want to circle back on each of those concerns a little bit later on. But let's just note at this point that Jesus means business when he's talking about forgiveness. Here's what Jesus knows. We all get hurt. You, I, all of us get hurt. And when you get hurt, you are a channel. Something flows through you. And it will be one of two things. It will be forgiveness or what we would call payback. By payback, I mean that cool, icy, emotional distance between you and someone who should be a friend. Or that hot, volcanic eruption of vitriol bursts forth from you in anger. We want to pay them back because they hurt us. I was reminded of a guy named Tom Mabe who got started in the payback business early. When he was, I think, eight years old, he made a snowman out in his front yard and some teenagers drove the car into it and smashed it down. So he built another snowman out there and they came and they drove over that one. Well, he built his third snowman over a fire hydrant and uh, then kind of shrugged his shoulders. <laughs> it kind of worked pretty well. <laughs> when we talk about payback, we're using financial language. Notice that. This is the very language that Jesus uses. Economic language. Banking language. Why would Jesus use this kind of language? Well, let's pay attention to the language of this prayer for just a moment. Uh, by the way, we do notice the language of the prayer, particularly when we go to another church and say the Lord's Prayer, you're at a wedding. Have you ever noticed that, where you're going through and you're saying trespasses and you're the only one and everyone else is saying something else? Like some churches, they'll say sins, forgive us our sins, which is the way Luke records the prayer in Luke chapter 11. Some churches, like ours, will say trespasses, which is the language of verses 14 and 15. Um, and I understand it's the most ecumenical form of the prayer in English, which is why we pray that prayer that way. But then some people will pray, and oftentimes as Presbyterians, will pray debts and debtors, which actually is the language that Jesus uses uh, in verse 12 here. Why would he use this language? I think because it helps Jesus explain to us the inextricable connection between our experience of God's forgiveness and our experience of trying to forgive one another. For example, if you think about trespasses, this implies crossing a line. And uh, it's really hard for me to understand the connection between if you cross a line and hurt me with if I cross a line and hurt God. It's just not obvious to me that those two things relate to one another. On the other hand, with the language of debts, immediately I start to see a connection. Because if you uh, hurt me and you are in my debt, and if I hurt God and I'm in his debt, the relationship between the two is currency. See, there's a, there's a financial connection with this metaphor. The same currency in relationship to you is in play in relationship to God. Jesus is teaching us these things are linked and you cannot separate them. There's a connection. What he's saying is that your spiritual experience, whatever it is, will cascade into your relational experience. 
Let me give myself as an example. I'll give you a little bit of a case study. A couple weeks ago, I hurt somebody at work. Okay, my team, we were uh, on a off-site, three long days of work, intense conversations, and you get kind of fried in those things, sitting around a conference room table. One afternoon, uh, I was advocating for something, and I was not winning the day. My colleagues were not buying it. And uh, they weren't doing anything wrong, but I was beginning to feel like I was losing at their expense, which is kind of what a debt is, right? Money was going out of my account, and it was accruing to their account. And I think backed into a corner, I felt like I had to do something. And without even thinking about it, I said something really mean to somebody. I used unfortunate words, and I hurt them. And as soon as I said it, I was sorry. Of course, I didn't say anything about it. And I noticed that person starting to get a little bit quiet at the table as the afternoon wore on. Later on, we checked in with each other uh, to debrief the meeting, and we went around. That colleague said, you know what? I'm angry. I'm angry because, George, you said something that was, was hurtful to me. And fortunately, in a moment of inspiration, I said the right thing at that point. I said, oh, you know what? I'm sorry. I said, you're absolutely right. I'm sorry I said that. Please forgive me. And they looked back at me, and they said the most wonderful words. They said, George, I forgive you. And it was real. We followed up after the meeting with that person. We had a conversation, and they said to me, George, you know what? Uh, we all love you, and we know you all love us. It's okay. You're forgiven. Now, behind that experience of forgiveness, which is in the social realm, each of us, my colleague and myself, have a rich experience of knowing we're debtors before God and seeking God's forgiveness regularly, just as Jesus instructs us in the Lord's Prayer. And it's because of that, because God has forgiven us a great debt and we know it. We have currency in our account. We have equity. We have capital available so that when somebody else hurts us, we can just, it just sort of flows out of us. I mean, for that person to be willing to say, I'm angry because you hurt me, but I forgive you because I love you, showed to me a deep reservoir of uh, receptivity to God's forgiveness. For me to take the risk in front of all our colleagues and say, I was wrong, I'm sorry, please forgive me. That took something uh, of an experience of that same reservoir of forgiveness. In a world of hurt, what, what I think Jesus is teaching us is that what flows in is what will flow out. That's why Jesus instructs us to continually seek forgiveness for our debts so that we have more than enough to forgive others. I said that I would return to my uh, two reservations or discomforts. Is it relevant to pray for forgiveness in an age that doesn't acknowledge guilt? thought about that this week, and I think, you know what? Maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe it doesn't matter what you believe. Maybe the dynamics of your life just are what they are, whether you believe in guilt or not. Let me put it this way. In our culture today, a lot is being written about shame, and I think it's really good. It's really helpful. I read a whole book on shame this summer. But here's why our culture is interested in shame. In our culture, shame is something that you can do, it exists in your head, and therefore you can control it. You see, but Jesus goes deeper. He goes to the root. He goes down to the depths of the well to deal with the root issue. He talks about guilt, knowing that if we can address our guilt, then the shame will follow. 
So maybe it doesn't matter that this doesn't feel relevant in our culture, but Jesus knows that it is relevant. About the question of conditionality, I'd like to say this. Maybe we're misreading the text. Maybe, just maybe, there isn't a causal connection between my forgiveness of others and God's willingness to forgive us. Is it really quite an if-then statement? One scholar uh, tells us that verses 14 and 15 are, in fact, about capacity, not conditionality. And he says verses 14 and 15 are in propositional form a, a, a story that Jesus tells in Matthew 18 in parabolic form. In Matthew 18, Jesus tells a parable that's called the parable of the unforgiven servant. Let me just refresh your memory. In this parable, a king forgives a slave of a great debt. But then that slave goes off and extracts all kinds of little debts from fellow slaves. To this, the king says, you're really not forgiven. It's not that the king didn't try to forgive him or truly forgive him of this debt, but this slave didn't seem to have the capacity to really receive that forgiveness, to really understand that that forgiveness was real and was for him. And because of that, even though he's forgiven, he's wealthy beyond means. He, he's going after all the people in his life to try to extract payback from them so that he can sort of on his own, apart from the grace of the king, try to repay some of this massive debt that's already been forgiven. So I think Jesus is assuming in this prayer that you can assume that you've already been forgiven a great debt. Now let me come back to our picture, the Cascades. Uh, let's picture ourselves in the Cascades. Wouldn't that be fun to all go hiking together? But let's picture us not there as hikers, but there as part of the landscape. Imagine that you're a pond, you're a tarn at the foot of one a great moraine, maybe on Mount Rainier, a vernal pool. There you sit. Above you, there's this massive mountain peak that, that's just majestic in its beauty. That is, its head reaches the heavens. And as you look up there, you realize that every year the snowpack melts, the snow falls, it melts, the rain comes down, and you're in a massive drainage system. You're a channel, actually. And this water comes sloughing through this drainage system, filling up your pool till it rises to its limit and then overflows. And you send water cascading down into uh, the valleys below, across plains, and all the way out to the Pacific Ocean. And if you think about it, there's a process of erosion that's actually really healthy, that minerals, little part particles are being carried in the stream of water into your life and then from your life, life-giving uh, uh, particles flowing out. What, what I think this image does for me is it helps me to see what Jesus is teaching us, and that's that forgiveness is a transferable asset that cascades from the great reconciliation to all lesser reconciliations. Jesus assumes you believe the good news, the gospel. The question is whether you'll bring the good news into the center of your relational network. The important thing about Jesus is not what he teaches us, because a lot of people teach us about how to be good people and good friends. The important thing about Jesus is what he has done to make it possible. And he has done this massive work of reconciliation. That's the gospel. The way I would summarize the gospel in a sentence is this. God has reconciled the world to himself in Jesus Christ. 
We don't worship or pray to a great heavenly accountant. We worship and pray to a great heavenly father. Not a, a false image of our failed human fathers, a perfect heavenly parent who holds us completely and eternally in an eternal relationship with himself. And the way to think of it is not to imagine an accountant up there checking off, yeah, you did that right, you did this wrong, kind of managing the balance sheet for you, keeping watch over it, but to think rather of a father who says, I am so committed to you, I am going to hold on to you no matter what you do, no matter what happens to you. See, God is the source of life, and so to turn away from God, as we all do, is to turn away from life itself, and there's always a cost to forgiveness, and God says, I'm going to keep paying that cost. Every time you pull away, you incur a greater and greater cost for me, but I'm going to pay the cost. I'll hold on to you, and when we get to the cross, in the fullness of time, we see exactly how much God was willing to pay to stay in relationship with you. Your Father is committed to you. So you're forgiven. You're forgiven for what you did in the past, for what you're doing right now that you don't even realize, for what you do, will do in the future. The slate has been wiped clean. This great mountain of reconciliation is the truth of your life. It's the beauty of your life. It's the origin of your life. It's the future of your life. As we sang earlier, this is the thing that's solid. God has reconciled you to himself in Jesus Christ. You're forgiven. And so if that's true, then we go, well, why in the world does he ask us to ask for forgiveness? Does that make any sense? Well, the reason is you and I don't realize how much we've been forgiven. You and I need to ask for forgiveness as frequently as we ask for our daily bread so that we can replenish our pool, so that we can be restored, so that it, it, we can take on more capacity from this great mountain so that we can build up water pressure in our lives so that truly we can be sources of forgiveness that cascade from our lives into the lives of other people. I'll tell you, and I'm not speaking metaphorically, I feel rich. I'm an American, middle-class American. I feel very rich, particularly when I read the news. And let me tell you, part of that's because of the way you so generously provide for our daily bread in the Hinman family, and I appreciate that. But it's also because something my parents did uh, for Anne and me a number of years ago, it wasn't that long ago, that Anne and I lived in a very small two-bedroom apartment on the outskirts of Boston, Massachusetts. It was old, run-down apartment, and we raised three kids in that apartment. And uh, we wanted to buy a house, but we couldn't afford the mortgage. And so one day, my parents paid off their mortgage on their house, and they said, George and Ann, we want to offer you a loan so that you can go get a mortgage, add to that our loan, and buy a house in Boston. And we did. And it was awesome. What we didn't expect is that, that about five years later, we'd get a letter from my parents. We opened up the letter. It was a nice stationery. And they say, George and Ann, we love you. And because we do, we have a special gift for you. We are forgiving the debt on your house. I mean, not the bank's mortgage, but the part that they had loaned us. Can you imagine that? So all of a sudden, we were rich. We had all this equity in this house that we never thought we would see as our own, and it was ours. So, man, we celebrated. We ran right out and got some frozen yogurt, right? We threw caution to the wind. <laughs> and I think that's what Jesus wants us to feel when we see what God has done for us. And, you know, you're rich. You know, the problem for so many of us is we just don't feel we can afford to forgive because we have so little. And when you take something from me in the form of a hurt, and I got to get something back somehow, compensate for it, rebalance the checkbook. And God says, no, turn to me. Don't turn to your friends. 
Don't turn to the people in your life to try to make yourself whole. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Well, I got a couple minutes left. Let me entertain a, a, a few final questions uh, because I get asked these questions a lot. The first one is this. Do I have to forgive someone who won't say they're sorry? Let the names come to your mind. <laughs> the earlier services were like collective groan. Oh, yes. Because they don't know they've hurt you. Or they don't care they've hurt you, right? Do you have to forgive those people? Well, let me answer a question with a question. And here's the question. This is a theological question. Did God forgive you before or after you repented? That's a tough one. But if you have the answer to that question, you have the answer to the other question. Now, I just want to suggest as you're trying to sort that through, did God forgive me before I repented or after I repented? You might want to look at some of the verses in the Bible that say things like this. Romans 5.8 says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 1.4 says, he chose us before the foundation of the world to be blameless in Christ Jesus. Luke 15, when Jesus is having lunch with sinners and people are challenging about it, he tells the story of the prodigal father who goes to the perimeter of his property, scanning the horizon, I take it every day, looking for that one son, hoping that he'll repent because he's already got forgiveness in his heart. So, I, yes, I think, my opinion is that God forgives us before we repent. And therefore, yes, we should offer forgiveness to those who won't say they're sorry because they don't yet know how they've hurt us. Second question, can I forgive someone who's still hurting me? Again, I say yes, but. I say yes, but. Yes, but. This doesn't mean that you allow them to continue to hurt you. You have to be a stewardship of your own health and your own life. Forgiveness is a posture of reconciliation, but it's not the whole thing. It's the first step. And I think you can always take that first step and forgive somebody. And I don't mean to say it's easy, but it's always possible. The second step, whether you go back into a relationship with them or not, depends. Okay? It might be in some cases they need to repent before it would be safe for you to move back into a relationship with them. Third question. Does this prayer of forgiveness perpetuate injustice? If we're just going to ask that God forgives everybody else as he's forgiven us, then do we just let evil flourish and the world go to hell? answer to that is no, and absolutely not no. In fact, I want to suggest to you that it's only the people that find Jesus' way of praying for forgiveness that are able to address injustice with honesty and constructive engagement. Without knowing how great a debt we have been forgiven, we will tend to be too passive in the face of injustice or too aggressive. We're too passive if we don't know how much we've been forgiven because we're sensitive constantly to other people's opinions about ourselves. We're too sensitive to criticism so we don't dare raise our voices in meetings or in the world. We just huddle into ourselves and say, oh, I'll take the hurt, I'll take the hurt, I'll pay the costs, I'll pay the debt. On the other hand, if we don't know what a great debt we've been forgiven, then we're too aggressive uh, in the face of injustice. Why? Because we don't think we need to be forgiven. We're just living with a spirit of self-righteousness. And whether you realize it or not, that's your heart's attitude, and you're constantly getting angry at everyone and everything. In essence, you're grabbing the world by the lapels, and you're saying, you'll pay for this. You'll pay for this. 
Jesus is saying, I've paid. I'm not calling you to pay. I'm not calling you to pay. I've already absorbed the debt of the world on the cross. And so people who appreciate that personally can now move into the world facing injustice with honest and constructive engagement. And friends, this is what the world needs now like nothing else. And I will not even illustrate the need today for reconciliation. How powerful this prayer is in the world. Have you ever noticed what we say when we see Mount Rainier? What do we say when it comes out? The mountain's out. I think that's so hilarious. It can really confuse me when I first moved up here from California. People go, hey, George, the mountain's out. And I'm like, where, where did you think it was? I mean, where do you keep it when it's not out? I don't, I, it was confusing to me. Like they put it away somewhere and then all of a sudden you come down I-5 and boom, the mountain's out. And you go, wow, there it is. You know what? Reconciliation is always there too. It's there whether you can see it or not. It's the big mountain. And this prayer, as often as you pray it, is a way of moving this mountain into the center of all of your relationships. The good news starts to transform and bring about relational reconciliation as forgiveness cascades. Yes, forgiveness is hard, it's gnarly, it's endlessly costly. That's why Jesus knows it can only be done by the rich. Those who have pawns filled with an abundance of God's forgiveness for them. Tonight, maybe your day is dark, damp, and foggy, and there's no mountain in view. But I want to encourage you to live with hope because you live at the foot of a great, great mountain. And soon, very soon, it's coming out. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, brothers and sisters in Christ, and those who are seeking, we gathered around this table tonight to confess our need for a Savior. It's safe for us to acknowledge our brokenness openly because we know of your eagerness to forgive us. In fact, it's already been done. Thank you for that gift. We pray that we, with hearts full of grace, would be a people from whom abundant forgiveness flows. We pray this in Jesus' name and for your sake. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.